The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're live. Click. Uh... It is Monday, December 6th, 5.01 p.m. Eastern Time. And today we're really actually not allowed to have fun anymore. Um, ben, do you want to do want to talk a little bit? Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't really I, I, I don't really quite know how to talk about this. Uh, Fred Hyatt, uh, who was um, uh, the editor of the Washington Post editorial page uh, for the last um, 21 years um, uh, died this morning uh, after collapsing in New York uh, on the street a, few, a number of days ago, just before Thanksgiving. Um, uh, Fred uh, and I worked together very, very closely for about 10 years. Um, we met, uh, I, I will not forget when I met Fred. So uh, Fred's predecessor, Meg Greenfield, who was the longtime editor of the Washington Post, so longtime editor of the Washington Post editorial page was sort of tied to her name, but now actually Fred was editor longer than Meg. Uh, uh, so, um, uh, Meg was considering hiring me, um, and, uh, she thought it was important that I meet Fred, um, before she hired me. And, um, Fred was, at the time, he seemed a lot older. He was 44 or 45, um, which, uh, seemed really old at the time, um, uh, and it was important to Meg to that Fred approve of me. And this was in some sense a recognition on her part that she was dying and she was very likely to be replaced by Fred. Um, and so we all went out to lunch at the Madison, which was kind of the cafeteria for the senior editorial staff of, of the post, at least the ones who didn't like eating in the actual post cafeteria. And um, I, you know, as a young 27-year-old uh, reporter, uh, met Fred Hyatt, who had, I guess, just been, uh, uh, he had, had, just, had relatively recently returned from uh, Russia uh, where he had been stationed uh, with his wife, Pooh, um, for a while. He had come back and joined the editorial page staff a couple years earlier. Um, and um, Fred, uh, Fred and I ended up working together over, I was at the editorial page for 10 years or nine years, most of it under Fred, not under Meg, because uh, she passed away relatively shortly, sort of a year and a half, two years after she hired me. Um, and, you know, Fred, uh, in the period in which he was, it's a, it's a kind of an interesting portrait of the 
difference of culture between the Washington Post and the New York Times. In the era since Watergate, the Washington Post has only had two editorial page editors, uh, Meg Greenfield and Fred Hyatt, and together they account for 40 years of the page's uh, uh, editorial leadership. Um, and in that period of time, I don't know how many people have been the editor of the New York Times editorial page, but they come and go, you know, the James Bennett's and the Howell Raines and the Gail Collins and the A.M. Rosenthal's, and they kind of cycle in every few years. And over at the Washington Post, you have these two giant figures um, who, uh, um, who are make incredible contributions over long periods of time. And I just want to talk about uh, a few of Fred's. Uh, one is uh, that he cared about democracy before it was cool. Um, and specifically, um, we have a pretty firm rule that we don't talk about the deliberations of the editorial page, and I'm going to break it right now. Um, Fred was sitting in my office one day and um, his secretary um, uh, came in and interrupted him and told him that the Chinese ambassador was on the phone. And he looked at me and grinned and said, oh, I think the Chinese people are very disappointed in me. And this was a long running joke that Fred and I had because every time the Washington Post would run an editorial about human rights in China, the Chinese ambassador would call Fred and intone, the Chinese people are very disappointed in you. And Fred would listen patiently and um, uh, uh, respond politely. And then a few days later would run another one. And he would do this to, uh, you know, uh, and he would always take the call uh, and he would always uh, be very polite, but give no ground, um, and then do it again two weeks later. Um, and so uh, to the Chinese ambassador, whoever you are these days, um, fuck you, because um, I'm less polite than Fred. Um, so, you know, he actually cared about human rights everywhere. Um, he cared about democracy everywhere. Um, and that included here. Um, second thing that was really just lovely about Fred and was that he, uh, he was an exceptionally, uh, good colleague. He was a pleasure to disagree with about things. And running something like the Washington Post editorial page is all about disagreement with people. We wrote in a collective voice. We had to get to uh, something that we could all have our names on, even though none of our names are on it. And the range of opinions on that page, unlike a lot of pages, which concentrate ideologically simply simpatico people. Ann Applebaum and Ruth Marcus are not ideologically similar. I am not ideologically similar with Colby King. And every day we got around the table and 
we actually tried to say things that we could all live with. Um, and there was something about modeling democracy in that. And by the way, some of us didn't like each other all that much. And we kind of did it anyway. Um, and there's a trick to doing that, which you can, it's an easy trick to it, which is you get weak-willed people and then you get a few strong-willed people who you agree with and the strong-willed people beat up those weak-willed people and you come to an agreement. And that was a trick. It's like a known trick in the editorial writing community and Fred didn't play it. Um, he actually got people who really had genuine differences of views. And, uh, and the Washington Post editorial page functioning at its best is like the best of think tanks. It is a bunch of people who don't agree about things and who sit around and argue about them and, uh, and try to come to understandings um, and actually write them and do it every day. Um, and every time you see an editorial in the Washington Post, unlike an editorial in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, it represents an actual deliberative process that somebody had to persuade a bunch of other people. That is not original to Fred. That was part of Meg's culture too. Fred, Fred was a creature of that culture, but he also represented it in a very profound and serious way every day for 22 years. Um, this culture had a very profound effect on me. Um, it is, the culture I have tried to create at Lawfare doing a very different thing, but it's a very, so editorials are fundamentally about short form writing. They're about identify a problem, analyze a problem, provide a road forward, four paragraphs, sometimes five if you want to write long uh, and you can get the space. Um, Lawfare is not about that. It's about longer form, deeper analytical writing that's not, you know, not necessarily for the general interest reader. Uh, but we've tried to create a mood that is deeply similar and a group of people that is similar in, uh, in spirit. Um, and I think if, if Lawfare has an animating parent culture it is probably some combination of the, it's some combination of the Washington Post editorial page and the Brookings Institution. It's not a law school. And, um, and that was something that was clear enough to Fred that we used to stay in touch about personnel. And Fred and I stayed close and, and we've been out of touch for most of the pandemic, but, um, when he needed a, um, a person to fill in for one of his people who was taking book leave, he called me, this was a couple of few years ago now, and, and called me and said, who's interesting and young at Lawfare who might be willing to do a six month stint? And that is how Quinta Jurassic came to be writing editorials for the Washington Post for, for better part of a year. There was a, 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 a kind of animating spiritual conversation 
that happened between what Fred was had done with the Post editorial page and what I was trying to do with Lawfare that we kept in touch about and we uh, both understood without ever speaking about it explicitly. Um, finally, I just want to say uh, Fred was an exceptionally good person. Um, there were significant issues about which we had differences and um, he was a pleasure to disagree with always. Um, he was a, a, a fierce mind with a gentle soul and uh, he could um, uh, uh, have very, very deep disagreements with people um, and yet make very substantial investments in them as minds that needed to be cultivated. And it is not an accident that uh, the Robert Kagans and the Ann Applebaums and the, uh, you know, in moments of democracy's crisis, where do they publish? Well, Ann publishes in the, in the Atlantic. She also has published consistently across time with Fred. Bob Kagan only publishes with Fred. <laughs> um, uh, and there's a reason for that. And um, that has to do with a lot of things about who he is as a person, what he cares about. Um, and so I don't have a whole lot more to say and there's no um, great way to wind this up with something pithy, but um, uh, you know, uh, Fred Hyatt was, was one of the good guys. That's it, that's all I have to say. And I'm sorry. Yeah, I am too. I think that that was beautiful. And I'm, I'm actually like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to, I mean, I actually like didn't know that about the opinion page editors that they had had such consistent runs. And I mean, he sounds like exactly the type of person that you'd want to run an opinion page for a paper who's who's um, who's known for the line, democracy dies in darkness. I mean, it just really sounds truly kind of, um, yeah, I'm very moved by that. He, it was really wonderful. Uh, he predates that slogan. There's one of, really? Yeah, so that slogan is- I didn't realize that that's, is that a recent slogan? I didn't realize relatively, that. Relatively, tr traditionally what, the, what goes under, which I actually like better, the Post's uh, masthead slogan was just an independent newspaper. Um, I do and, remember that. And huh. um, I didn't they, realize that those were like, those had changed. They replaced it at some point with democracy dies in darkness, um, uh, which I've always thought was a little bit, a little bit in Purple. your face. Um, but, it was a little uh, bit what? A little bit in your face. Um, but because uh, it had this kind of pugilistic quality, which is whereas an independent newspaper was kind of like, oh, say what you want about us. We're just here being independent, mm -hmm. um, which, which I kind of liked better. Um, but um, uh, yeah, uh, he. Um, uh, the other thing that was interesting about Fred, and this is actually going to be extremely hard to replace. I, I don't I don't know how they will do it. Um, but he 
had a sense of the biggest of the big picture, you know, how should we feel about Vladimir Putin? How, what should, right, like, how should we react to X going on in Hong Kong? Um, but also cared about who got elected as county executive in Prince George's County and who was gonna, who was running for school board in Fairfax County, right? The, he had started life in, at, at the Washington Star, actually, and then later at the Post as a local reporter. Hmm. And he kind of never lost touch with that, you know, connection that a newspaper has with its um, with its local community, which I I always admired because I frankly didn't share. You know, I could I could I, I often have trouble with the biggest themed stuff, and I get quite bored with the local stuff, and so I I focus on that middle. You know, I have my legal stuff, and I focus on that, and I'm a kind of narrow cast person but he he could really do when he was elevated to editorial page editor uh somebody came around and was doing a profile of him and they asked me you know for my thoughts and i said he must read really fast because he comes into the editorial page meeting every day with a sense of the you know the f international news and the and the like the backside of the metro section which i never get to and he came into my office very amused and he's like i read really slowly <laughs> i just spend a lot of time on it he sounds um, like he had a, a tremendous i guess how you put it is like a, a like a range basically like between high and low his range was amazing and it was amazing also at the talent spotting level so like he, you know, he could notice a Catherine Rampell when she was a 22-year-old or 21-year-old intern and she shows up at the page and, uh, you know, Kathy impressed the hell out of all of us, but, you know, but she, like, Fred noticed, but he's also, like... And he noticed that this is like somebody who can write about economics in a way that, but he's also like, you know, the person who published Alexandra Petri being funny, right? Yeah. Like, and I was actually going to ask that. Is he, kind of range. is he like, I mean, that's also like an interesting, so, so he was like kind of, he's like, a, you know, so he, like his, her hiring was like, you tell that story when she was on, we should have her back by the way. Um, but uh, you tell that, do you remember telling the story when Alexandra was on of her cracking a joke at an editorial meet at like a news meeting and like the, the, the stones it kind of took to like, to like do that. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like he must've been one of the people who quite enjoyed that. So I wasn't there. Um, oh, okay. Uh, Alex and I did not overlap at the, she was, I was gone by the time she got there. I actually met her at Fred's house. Um, oh, really? And 
Yeah, she was uh, sitting on a, um, she was, I had no idea who she was. She was sitting on a, uh, on a, on the porch um, and um, making hilarious snide comments at, <laughs> at, at things that people said. And I, I thought she was hilarious, but you know, it's, it's not a community of people that has, there aren't that many people who cycle through people tend to stay for very long periods of time. And, and so I was like, I said, Fred, who is she? And, you know, he kind of introduced her and um, he was very proud of her. Um, he thought, he thought she was like exceptionally funny. And, um, and I've never talked to Alexandra about how, what, what role that page had in cultivating her voice. But I, I, like and she would have done great anywhere but it's not an accident that you know the list of people who came up through that page is 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 really impressive yeah yeah well i'm like i'm really sounds like we lost him too soon i feel like the and i mean i think that goes without saying but it just um yeah this has been it, it's been kind of lovely to talk about him and get to kind of know him through your eyes. And um, maybe we'll have Alex and Jonathan and others on later this week to talk about it some more um, or kind of like tell stories if people want to. But um, thank you for sharing this one. I'm I like I just yes. yeah, I, I mean, it sounds like we as you would say, you're a great American. Um, he, he was a, a genuinely great American. Yeah. Um, and also, it's possible to be a great American and not be a great person. He was a great person, too. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he shared a lot of himself with everyone. And and he was a formative influence on me um, at a time that I uh, didn't necessarily know that I needed one or was looking for one, but... Um, or even new to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, well, let's go to, I was gonna kind of, besides other, I kind of was, I guess it's like cheese night, so it's kind of grab bag of whatever we want to talk about. But um, I was gonna say that, um, to switch like kind of topics for a second, that I have, has anyone been following the, um, the shooting in Michigan's decision to prosecute the parents. I have followed it a little bit, um, but not with the kind of precision that it would require. Is it something that, that I, are you writing about it for lawfare or anything? No, 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 no. Or is anyone? Mean, no, it's outside of our jurisdictional mandate, but I, I, I mean, my instinct is it's indefensible, but then the more I learn about how negligent the parents were, um, the less, uh, the less confident I am in that. Yeah. So Bradley Belko, who I love and is an old friend, uh, and who's been on the show, I invited him on today because he had, um, a uh, very ratioed tweet. Um, I don't know if you saw it, but that was basically like, uh, be really careful 
in like going after parents, like this is not something that this doesn't create great precedent if this becomes the norm. And uh, he literally was like, I was like, do you want to come on and talk about your tweet? And I will read what he said. And he, it was because it's kind of great. Um, uh, where is it? Uh, he goes, uh, not a chance. <laughs> I've loved doing your show, but Jesus, the hate and vitriol <laughs> that the tweet is from that tweet is still rolling in. I can't recall the last time I've been called a racist, white supremacist, gun nut, etc. So many times in so short a period of time. Think I'm going to let people calm down a bit before addressing the issue again, but then I'll do the show. <laughs> um, but I, I, I kind of like, I quite like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm quite kind of uh, amazed at. Um, I'm kind of, I'm surprised by that. It seems, I guess, for me, it seems like kind of obvious that like there is a principal problem with like going principal agent problem and like going after parents and that it creates really terrible legal precedent. Uh, yeah. I just kind of would, I'm just like in like, it, I just wondered if you had thoughts on it and, but that, I guess you just told me. So, well, I, I mean, I guess my reaction to it is look, if imagine the parent were there and gave him the gun that morning after the right, there's some level of, you didn't shoot anybody, but what you did is so reasonably leads proximate is 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 a effectively a proximate requirement for, and you should have known that that you get into involuntary manslaughter territory. Burdens on the prosecution to show that, um, and I'm generally skeptical of the idea of prosecuting people who didn't commit murder for other people's murders. That said, it sounds pretty awful. I mean, what what these parents are alleged to have done. And so, um, you know, you have a mentally ill kid who's having trouble, so logically give them a firearm. And then when he gets caught in school checking out the ammo ads, you know, tell him you're not upset with him except that he got caught. Don't get caught. Um, I mean, it's pretty bad. I mean, it's like even more than that, right? And Genevieve, you were about to say something, so I didn't want to cut you off. But I was reading some of the facts and like apparently the day of the shooting, there was like a meeting with the principal and his parents yeah. in which like, I, and I don't understand how this, I literally don't understand how he still was in possession of a weapon after that meeting like I mean, he, like it's like it strikes me as also the school's fault i mean i don't know how a school takes away a gun but like yeah look i mean the the answer to this question i think is pretty simple which is the burden of proof is on the prosecution i don't know what this what the statutory elements of uh, a in michigan are um They've got a high burden, but it sounds like there there may be facts that get you pretty near it. And so I'm I'm, I guess let them file the motion to dismiss. Let them, um. But I'm I'm not gonna say, like per se, under no circumstances could you do that. And I think just the other day, I was texting with Ev about this, and I kind of took the other, the my instinctive view, which is. 
come out and that's indefensible prosecuting the parents for but you know the more facts come out the less confident of that i am i mean it does seem like it's an interesting argument um about inaction and failing to intervene um regularly and take care to intervene like seems more compelling and more compelling i mean i don't know but it's um, I think that there's, I don't know. I think that, but I do, I do kind of, yeah, it, but I instinctively, it does seem crazy. Ooh, I what hear I, somebody. Oops, sorry. I yes. hear um, what I was going to, yes. What I was going to say is they kind of do have something that's not exactly identical, but the dram shop laws in New York about yes. parents being liable for drinking. Yeah. But the dram shop laws are. The dram shop laws are the idea there is like, I mean, I think that that's what people who are opposed to this also are concerned about, which is like the idea that you can hold a gun seller responsible for is that this is like a very small step away from that. Um, well, ex except I think there's a there are statutory protections for both gun makers and gun sellers uh, designed to deal with exactly that problem. And some, some people don't think that's the best policy idea in the world. But, um, but the, the, the parents, I don't know. I, I, I guess I would say what we should all say about all of these cases, which is that they're innocent until proven guilty and let's see what happens in court. But it's some, some shocking allegations, frankly. Yeah, we have I mean, a they really lot are. Of, we have a lot of good questions. I'm here. going, I'm going, I'm but going. But I I'm just sorry. want to like... point out that, that Christopher Argyris's first question about what Scott should call his 9 p.m. show on CNN is really a poll waiting to happen. I will do that. I also invited Chris on, but uh, Richard. Hello. The floor is yours. I, you upvoted, your, your question's been upvoted. Oh, it has been. Oh, no. Um, so, Ben, I... Uh, a lot of us noticed your tweet this weekend where you dissented from the widespread belief that next year's election is going to be a disaster. And then um, Bart Gelman's piece uh, dropped today in The Atlantic about the coming 2024 coup. And, um, you know, and he actually had some similar pieces uh, last year year as I mean I guess he came on and talked about yep. I guess the one he had in December so um and he was right about a lot of things but not everything not the big picture but um in general like how uh, how do you read pieces like like this and in, in light of your uh you know your own uh instincts about what's going on well so so, so first of all, let's separate two things. My point about dissenting from the doomsday doom, doom casting doom conventional wisdom mm -hmm. was really about honest elections, not about, mm -hmm. you know, faked elections. Mm -hmm. And that point, look, I'm not saying I think the Democrats are going to win or that the Republicans are going to actually underperform relative to their current ex current. I'm just saying that any snapshot in time a year before an election is a fool's errand, 
and um, this everybody's certainty that they know what's going to happen a year ago, a year from now, will look very different if six months from now we have Delta under control, Omicron is not, you know, rampaging through the country, killing people, and, um, and the economy is doing well, then if Omicron, you know, bears its fangs and bites us in the neck, uh, the economy sputters out in response, and uh, we all decide to eat each other's throats about critical race theory. Um, and, you know, I, I do think situations, circumstances matter. I also think candidates matter. You know, if the Republicans nominate a whole bunch of Glenn Youngkins, we're going to look at the situation very differently than if they nominate, you know, J.D. Vance's and Eric Greitens and and remember J.D. Vance is the moderate in that in that race in Ohio. Um, Don't so say that. That's it's not funny. True. I mean, you know, Josh Mandel is. I you know, and so like, you know, there are a lot of variables that aren't in place yet, including, um, including, you know, what the president's approval rating is likely to be within three to five months of the election. And so I, I just think people's desire to report on the future is unfortunate. And I think it has a demoralizing effect on the on the pro-democracy forces, which are not coextensive with the Democratic Party, but, you know, overlap significantly with the Democratic Party right now. And I just wish people would, you know, take bad news as motivation rather than as... Um, What's the bad news here? Well, that they feel like there's a lot of bad news and that this is leading them to conclude that, um, you know, that Republicans are essentially already in the not just Republicans, but the worst Republicans are in control of houses of Congress already. And I'm just saying, cool down. Yeah. Like, don't don't assume the worst results and then catastrophize them. Um, like, and a year is a freaking long time. But yeah. you get so many clicks when you catastrophize them. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, it's not just that, Genevieve. I mean, although I agree with you, but like, isn't this the entire, like, and we did this all last summer, Ben. Not last summer, but the summer before that, because that's how long we've been doing the show, which is, uh, <laughs> which is the summer before the 2020 election. We spent the entire summer talking to pollsters, trying to predict people's minds and like the future and like, I don't know. I this is and I remember saying this like I have never been interested in polling because I feel like it is snake oil. And I'm not talking about the interest groups that Sarah Longwell does. I'm talking about like straight up polling like to predict results. Well, and th and that brings us to the second part of Richard's question, which is about Bart and his different kind of doomsday scenario planning, which is sort of mapping out the like the 
the coup, right? The the future 2024 coup. I have not read the piece yet. Um, but let me say, as I gave Bard a pretty hard time about his first coup imagine, imagining thing. He was not so far off that it was not worth, like, that it was in retrospect irresponsible to run that piece. Uh, he didn't he didn't get, as Richard rightly points out, he didn't get every detail right, but he got a lot of things right. And in, I, I mean, I didn't think it was irresponsible at the time, though I did think he was probably overstating things. Um, I think in retrospect, he was making people think about what could happen and what thinking about what could happen in the Trump era is a not a terrible way of thinking about what might happen. And so I, um, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for Bart to write a uh, let's let's sketch out the realm of what the law could tolerate here and imagine that against the personalities that we're dealing with. Do I think he's likely describing what will happen? Probably not. I do have I like a, hmm. you know, do I think it's worth thinking about? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that like I'm generally not a fan of like don't write something because it might come true or don't write something because then you'll give them the idea or don't like, I don't know. That just generally think, strikes me as like, yeah. I think Richard, like, I think the line I would draw Richard is I don't think it is, is responsible to say some, this, the following scenario could theoretically happen. Therefore we should assume it will. Uh, and the confusion of what could happen with what will happen is where things get very irresponsible. Bart doesn't, he's not that kind of guy as a general matter. So I, again, without having read the piece, I would not assume that's what he's doing. On the other hand, the analytic evaluation of what the rules will theoretically tolerate in light of the personalities that we're dealing with strikes me as a reasonable precaution, honestly. Yeah. Um, okay. Paula or Christopher. Sorry. Clicked the wrong box. Hi. No problem. Uh, ben, I, I wrote my upvoted question before your very moving uh, uh, monologue, and thank you for that. So in, in light of that, um, speaking of the Chinese ambassador or the Russian ambassador, I, I don't wondered whether you had seen the their joint op-ed in a lesser publication. Um, before this, complaining about this upcoming summit of democracies, which they weren't invited to. Um, so I'm wondering, how would the Washington Post handle a, a request from the Chinese and Russian ambassador to, to write a joint op-ed, and would they just summarily dismiss that or entertain, sort of see what they want to write about, and then say, yeah, that's not really for us? So it's a it's a super complicated question, and um, uh, the Post has run. Uh, and and let me just say, I haven't worked there in uh, almost 15 years. Actually, 15... F Wait, sorry. Um, I haven't worked there, yes, in, in, in more than 15 years. Um, uh, so, uh, 
how what may have changed between then and now I don't want to speak to. Uh, and I don't think there would have been at that time any hard and fast rules like we would never do X. Uh, while I was there or shortly after I left, we ran a piece by Ismail Haniya, who is a Hamas um, leader. Um, and the Post got a lot of criticism for that. Um, and, you know, so there certainly isn't a general rule that we will never, we would never run a piece by, you know, the bad guys. Uh, there is a, a rule that we won't, we don't knowingly publish facts that are untrue. Um, and so often when the bad guys get together to, you know, say things, and I have not read the op-ed that you're describing, um, they, it's very hard to do that and to make the compelling point without, you know, saying things that aren't true. And um, uh, and so things would often run aground that way. Uh, there was also always, when I was there, a presumption that when a major politician had something to say, um, we would tend to run it um, just on the grounds that the public has an interest in that. That instinct may be less now than uh, that, you know, everybody's got a Twitter feed and right, like we're less of a gateway than the than they were when I was there, um, uh, but we used to feel like, uh, hey, if you know, if Senator so and so wants to say his piece on such and such, which we've editorialized on, we'll generally give him the chance to do it, and that would apply to certain foreign leaders in certain situations as well. So those are the variables, um, but then the op-ed comes in. And I think the answer is you kind of evaluate it on its own, on its own merits with those as the parameters. I mean, there has to be a line for some type of propaganda. Like it can't just be, it also can't be like a very truthful, right? Like, I mean, you wouldn't want to just like allow the Chinese government to use Correct. the op-ed page as a propaganda tool. Like, I don't understand how that balance gets struck in in op-eds, op except that I think that generally speaking, that the opinions have to be supported as argument, right? Like by fact. Agreed. And the facts have to be true, right? So here's a here's an interesting problem. You want to give the... Chinese ambassador, his, his, his opportunity to say his piece, but he wants to say that there's no oppression of Uyghurs in China. Is that a matter of opinion or is that a matter of fact, right? You get into some very weird territory very quickly and those decisions are hard. I would be surprised if there were a per se policy in any direction, except that the per se policy that if stuff is false, we're not publishing it. Um, and so it, it's, it's actually a very hard problem, Chris. And, and, and there's, 
there's no easy solution. There's no easy solution to it, in my view. There's just there's just uh, uh, important guideposts, and Kate's is another is another important one. You don't want to be a, ve a vehicle for totalitarian propaganda. That said, um, uh, eventually you're going to make a decision on on a on a uh, piece by piece basis. Seems, I mean, it seems like another way of putting the the point that I said is like the paradox of tolerance that is kind of in place at um, in any dem democratic institution. I mean, there just has to be some level of judgment and like an absolute. Yeah, right, exactly. You can't be so tolerant of to the point where you're tolerating right. persecution. No, I think that that's I, so. The other thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and this reminds me that we have to have him on. Um, but I was listening to John McWhorter. I think I told you this, Ben. Um, and I was reading some of his book. And Wh which uh, book? The the new one or well, the Nine Dirty Words book? But I've read. Well, I was reading Woke Racism. So that was like kind of, so I was reading that, but then I was like, but I generally was just kind of a lot of, I was thinking about the nine dirty words thing in him writing that. And like, when you bring this up, because if you'll remember, there was like an op-ed about that was published by the editorial board and editors about publishing his article using the unredacted N word. And I thought that that was like a very interesting kind of level of framing of an opinion column that I have just generally not seen. Um, and so, uh, and I kind of would be interested to be like, it would be fascinating to be like, we decided to publish, if, if that happened maybe a little bit more and the curtain was pulled back. But I suppose the more you do that, the more you open you that you pull back the curtain and have transparency in that way the more that you create an expectation that people should deserve an explanation for like how things get chosen does that make sense yep. yeah yeah um hi luke um he's snoring that's why i'm out I have my is he muted. i can't hear him snoring no, let him let him snore it's like a little i think everybody appreciates it yeah, what a little cutie. Um, Paula, <laughs> who's headed into her first semester of finals. Hey, friend. Good yeah, luck. you're fine. You got this. Um, so I was wondering, uh, you and Ben obviously have experience in journalism. If you can comment on the like ethical violations that Chris Cuomo made um, by his meddling, I guess, would be the right word in the investigation of his brother. Because I think a lot of journalistic standards are unspoken. Like, there's no, like, written list of all of them. Um, so if you guys could go into that. You want to take that one, Kate? I mean, I'm far less the journalist than you are. But I would say that, like, one of the main things that, like, generally like the free speech theory and journalistic like journalism as a profession um that is like journalism as a profession is a relatively new development um 
and the professional standards, like fiduciary standards, like the the duties that are incumbent upon a journalist to their readership, to their editor, to the truth. Um, those are all kind of that's all like been the professionalism of journalism in like the last, I would say, like 80 years ish. And like there used to be no journalism school. That's part of like kind of the, the professionalization of journalism. Many journalists don't go to graduate school for journalism because there is an acknowledgement that you can like kind of like create this kind of knowledge on your own and learn it at, at, at elbow, so to speak. Um, something like the law used to do and the medicine used to do, but those have truly been professionalized. But I would say that like no one tells you there is no place that it's written down that says off the record is like some type of magic. Like it's not, it's just not, it's like completely discretionary. Like It's just like a complete, you do it. And the risk is to you and your reputation. Should the person that you told something to decide to say, I said this to you off the record and you blew it, you quoted me on the record and screw you buddy and this is like and i mean and that makes it so it is less likely that people will sources will trust you in the future but generally speaking all of this stuff is just kind of made up which is one of the reasons that when it goes wrong it's so devastating because it casts kind of like a, a shadow and, a, and a, an uncertainty on everything all of the knowledge creating industries of journalism like so like the whole so like when you have a Oh my God! Who was the guy Ben from the uh, from the um, the New York Times that made up all the stories? Jason Blair. Yeah, Jason Blair. Who is the other? and Philip Glass and like no, not Philip Glass. Yeah, no, wait. Stephen yes. Glass. Stephen Glass. Who, uh, the redemption story of whom that I've been waiting for to be published has finally been published. Wait, he had Phil? a redemption story. Stephen Glass has many flaws in life and they have been well publicized uh he did one wonderful thing at least one that i'm oh. aware of which is that he cared for julie hilden uh until her death um uh uh and kept the secret that she was ill uh julie was a friend of mine and uh somebody who i uh would have liked to know was sick actually um and um and i was uh more than a little bit uncomfortable when she uh uh connected with stephen glass um hmm. uh, who was her client um and um uh she uh when i asked her for an explanation why are you dating stephen glass she looked at me and cheerfully smiled and said damaged people unite and uh, uh, Julie had a 50% chance of inheriting her mother's early onset Alzheimer's and dying around 50. Uh, and that is what happened to her. And uh, Stephen Glass uh, took loving care of her uh, uh, all through her illness. And um, uh, I honestly think, you know, he should probably never work in journalism, uh, but I, uh, uh, 
think he's suffered enough, and I am glad that somebody uh, has bothered to tell that story. I think that that's a. I think that that's a really I, one of the things that bothers me. One of the things that I've written about, and I know we're kind of like a little bit off topic here from Paula's question, but one of the things that really bothers me around the moral, or excuse me, the norm enforcement of shaming is, sorry, drink, um, is that basically um, that the norm enforcement of shaming is imprecise and it's disproportional typically from it, yeah. like, it, it, you know, like, it's not like putting someone in jail and like putting someone in jail actually also protects them, like in a way, which is like in the sense that like they're being punished other punishment is not going to befall them. This right. is their punishment, right? Yeah. Um, when that doesn't happen, when you don't have something like that, there is a sense that every, like it is on, incumbent upon every individual to exercise punishment against that person, that it's not being done on behalf of people. And so like, this is part of the reason that I think that it's fascinating how society shames people for fascinating and terrible and Stephen glass is a perfect example jason i mean all of these people all of the people who have plagiarized also are like generally i think that they're steven's Steven's behavior at the new republic was sociopathic i mean like it is it absolutely is but it's also was as well and i don't want to say a word in defense of those right uh, of of uh, or in mitigation actually um and but why are those crimes moral crimes Except well, for the lying part. There was a lot of betrayal of people who were close to him. And, but I just want to say life is complicated yeah. and it is possible to be the person who did, by the way, the movie Shattered Glass, totally accurate. Um, uh, I had some very peripheral involvement in that story. Uh, that story, that movie is, with the exception of, conflating a couple characters um mm-hmm. so said that, that chloe sevigny could play jonathan chait basically uh it's an incredibly accurate film um wow. and uh and very worth watching so watch that movie and then i did i watched it on your no, no, not you in particular yeah. in general Sorry. <laughs> watch that movie and you'll have a correct impression of stephen glass of at that time the mid late 1990s uh, and then read the story that ran in airmail, which, um, uh, you know, I'm glad somebody finally told came out because, two days ago. Yeah, because that's that's, uh, uh, you... that's who he has been more recently, at least vis-a-vis Julie Hilden. And if you want to know who Julie Hilden is, she is the author of the book that I just shared in the chat called The Bad Daughter which is about you've talked about she, this before yes. how she abandoned her mother when her yeah. mother had late stage early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, the, just a quick question. Do you guys think that the issue of amplification at the time that those violations happened or the violation of trust happened and the fact that there wasn't necessarily the same platforms as we were speaking about earlier is kind of what leads to the lack of a norm of norm enforcement and the proportion, like the extent of the, actions taken against by individuals i mean well in, in, in the case of steven steven I, I know the jason blair story less well to be honest because it wasn't like it, it wasn't involving a whole bunch of people whom i'm close to but um 
Stephen create. I I don't think the New Republic and the society in in the moment could have handled it more gently than they did, because he um, he so energetically lied about it and fabricated material that he actually created significant legal exposure for the institution. And like, I mean, he made up, he made up, he forged websites. He, um, I mean, it was really extreme and they ended up libeling people. Um, and so, you know, I think they, they were in an impossible position. Um, and you know, and also he never really came clean about it. Um, and so I think there was there was a lot of bitterness. Can you say more about that? Like, did he really like so this is part of the stuff that I find fascinating. I was actually just don't ask me why, but on Reddit, there was someone posting John Gacy's John Wayne Gacy's autobiography and the 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 and they posted the first 18 pages and which was like a preface of him saying that there's two sides to every story and the media i'm like dude they found like 38 bodies buried in your house like yeah, but what his point of view but i've never seen it I, from your point of view I just, i'm just kind of like i don't know if i want to i'll have nightmares yes, from his point of view no, exactly but like my we're point all is, asking for it that's his but, point of view but like yeah exactly um but there's <laughs> like there is just like but 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 what's amazing to me about that is like I'm just, I'm reading it. I'm like, well, all I'm interested in, all I ever want to know is like why there is like this, what, what is going through your head? Like while this is happening or whatever. And like, I have the same question with like the sociopathy, uh, the, the, the sociopathy of like serial plagiarists. Like it is like a, it is like this, it is a similar question and like a similar level of like, I don't don't purport to understand it. Stephen was more than a plagiarist. He was a fabulist, as was Jason Blair. I mean, they just made made up entirely false. Um, But I want to return briefly, if we can, to Paula's question about Chris Cuomo. Uh, Chris Cuomo's behavior is completely indefensible. What did he do? Uh, So he uh, acted as a, uh, basically a consultant to his brother, um, while covering, you know, while a CNN anchor. Um, and you just can't do that, right? You can, you can be a, 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 a... Far cry from Cronkite. You can be a CNN anchor, or you can do have people do opposition research on behalf of your brother so he can sexually harass people. You can't do both at the same time. And... Um, and I, I, you know, look, I would do a lot for my brother. Don't implicate the journalism organization in it. Just, you know, take a leave, be your brother's press secretary, uh, maybe choose a different brother. <coughs> um, uh, but what he did is indefensible and CNN was, is right to terminate him yeah. on that basis. Um. Hi, Luke. Someone's awake. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Hello. No, 
Luke, you're not allowed to politically demonstrate on the podium. No, Luke, we Luke, learned that from Noah Hoffman on Friday. We are not allowed to have fun anymore, but Luke is, is milk drunk. just beginning. He's, I know. Milk drunk. He's a late night baby. <laughs> this is his morning. <laughs> ben, thank you again for a beautiful um, kind of story and uh, a start to the show. And sorry for your loss again. Um, yes, truly. And all of ours. Yeah, um, all you. of ours, truly. Yeah. Um, we'll be back tomorrow, 23 hours, 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. Um, and until then, Luke. We don't have fun anymore, but until then, we have fists. Chew <laughs> on Can you smile? Yeah, and like a little, hi. Yes. Hi. <laughs> Oh, Thanks, my God. John's looking at me and I'm wondering why I'm talking to people <laughs> right on the internet.